Thanks, Ellie. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at Midtown Community Church, and uh, let me be another face to say good morning and, and hello to you. Um, so we are in this sermon series here at the beginning of the life of our church um, in which we're walking through uh, what our values, vision, and mission look like as a church. So in the first part of this sermon series, um, we looked at our vision statement as a church, that we as a church, as Ellie said, exist to see the weak, wounded, and wayward of Midtown Harrisburg encounter the living Jesus. And we broke that down and looked at that a little bit Then in part two of the series, we looked at our mission statement, what what we said the church is called to be everywhere and all the time. And how we talk about that is through the words, uh, uh, not Jesus, worship, community, and mercy. And so now this morning, we're turning to talk about our values. And what we mean by our values here at Midtown Community Church are the unique ways that we as a church are pursuing that vision of seeing the weak, wounded, and wayward encounter Jesus. Our our values speak to how we as a church desire to live out that mission of worship, community, and mercy. And so if that wasn't muddy and unclear enough, uh, I'm just going to put our values up on the screen for us because uh, I think this is the best way for us to get them. So between now and the end of November, these next four weeks, we're going to look at four different passages that speak to these four realities in the life of our church. And so th- these, these values answer the questions of, like, how at, how, how at MCC specifically are we going to pursue worshiping Jesus through gospel-centered rhythms? That's what we're going to talk about today. How will we as a church pursue community through radical hospitality and empowered membership? And how will we pursue mercy uniquely as a church through what we're calling city renewal. And I hope that as we walk through these next four weeks, uh, that we can show you some of the unique DNA that we hope our church can live into together. Now, as we talk about values as a new church, um, all of that stuff is aspirational, right? So values are not something that you can divorce from action. So if I say I value my family, the only way for me to actually value my family is in the active practice of loving them, of putting their desires before my own. And so it's the same with us as a church. And so I pray that, that even as we walk through these four weeks and look at these four values, that these things would start to actually take root in us as a church, that we would become those kind of people, the kinds of people we're gonna talk about over these next four weeks. So with that said, this morning, we're gonna look at how we pursue worship of the living Jesus through gospel-centered rhythms. And we're gonna do that in the text of Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. So if you wanna turn there, with me. Uh, If you're using the Black Bible in the back of the pew, it'll be on page 1006. And as you're turning there, as we get ready to to look at this text this morning, I want to encourage you with a bit of good news this morning. No matter how much you may want to change, no matter how much there are parts of yourself that you are frustrated by. 
that you know do not line up with the way that the Lord God wants you to live and the person that you want to be. God wants to break into your life and he wants to change you. So you don't need to settle for the status quo this morning because the living Jesus is on his throne and he has given us his church, his Holy Spirit, and he wants to meet you this morning. So let's look at this passage from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This is the word of God. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Would you pray with me? The Holy Spirit would come and teach us this morning. Father, we come to you this morning, and and like I just said, like we acknowledged in our service already, Lord, we are not the people that we want to be. None of us are, if we're honest. And so, Lord, we pray that you would show us Jesus so that we might change, so that we might become this morning more truly people of beauty, people who are fit for your kingdom. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Well, there's two things that I want us to see this morning from this text about how we as a church worship the living Jesus. Uh, First, we worship the living Jesus by living lives of response, and second, by living lives of rhythms. Lives of response and lives of rhythms. And, and I'll just say, I know there are a few more kids with us this morning than normal, so kids, if you're in here, I'm gonna encourage you, if you have a piece of paper or if your parents have a piece of paper, uh, to, to take a piece of paper, and if you can, while we're, while we're talking about this, jot down on that piece of paper as many pictures of you, as you can of things that you really love, things that make you excited about life, things that you are pumped about. All right, so first point this morning, lives of response. Now, the primary command that the Apostle Paul gives the church here in verse 1 is that command to present our bodies as living sacrifices. Now, the language of sacrifice should draw our minds back as readers to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament nation of Israel was given a system of sacrifices to offer to God. And these sacrifices, if you read through the Old Testament, can seem intimidating. I think Pastor Greg joked a few weeks ago when he was preaching that that those chapters of the Bible are where all Bible reading plans go to die uh, when we get to the sacrifices in the Old Testament. And and they can be really hard to get our heads around. But I remember hearing um, recently on a, a Bible project video, if you guys know what those are, they're wonderful videos, that all of the biblical sacrifices recorded in the Old Testament are essentially a way of saying one of two things to God, either thank you or I'm sorry. These sacrifices, if we boil it down, were the way that the Old Testament saints related and responded to God's presence and action in their lives. 
And if you compare Romans chapter 12, verse 1, with the, the language of the Old Testament sacrificial system, you'll see a ton of overlapping vocabulary. And essentially what Paul and the early church did is they grabbed this language of sacrifice from the Old Testament and they applied it as a metaphor for the Christian life, for how we are to respond to God with all of our lives. That command in verse one is a call to lay down our lives as a sacrifice on the altar in worship to God, to give our whole selves over to God. And if you look, that last phrase of verse 1 calls this sacrificing of ourselves, this living sacrifices, true worship. Now, now that word that's translated true here at the end of, of verse 1 more literally means reasonable or rational. And with that word, what the Apostle Paul is trying to do here is he's trying to highlight that to devote our bodies, our time, our money, our preferences, our habits, and everything else about our lives, to devote all of ourselves to God is intrinsically reasonable and rational. It makes sense to give God everything. Now that doesn't strike us immediately as the most rational thing to do. Right, right. We might, if we could talk to the Apostle Paul today in our modern 20, 21st century, we might say, hey, Paul, I, I think we should talk to you about boundaries, right? Like, I think we should maybe talk to you about some, what some relational boundaries look like. Some may even say that, that this is an abusive relationship, right? How, how can God demand everything from us? How can Paul call this a rational, reasonable response, well, think about this. Some responses in a certain situation look irrational until you actually like get closer and look at it more up close, and then you're like, oh, that is an actual, actually a rational response. So for instance, let's say that we're all up on top of a hill, and we look down and we see a man at the bottom of the hill thrashing, his arms flailing, his, his feet moving like he's in a one-man mosh pit. And we're like, Homie's crazy. Like, he, he's, not, he's not okay. And then we take a few more steps down the mountain, and we start to hear something. We're like, what's that? And then we take a few more steps, and we see a dark cloud start to form around his head. And then we take a few more steps, and we realize that sound that we're hearing is very loud buzzing. We realize, quickly, this guy is not crazy. He's just getting attacked by bees. <laughs> and that's a reasonable response. And so if we get closer to verse 1 and look at it again, there's one phrase that makes our response of total sacrificial devotion to God look entirely reasonable. Would you read verse 1 with me again here? It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true worship. Now that phrase, in view of or because of the mercies of God, when that phrase comes into focus, a life of sacrificial devotion to God becomes the most rational response that we can have. 
You see, because the Apostle Paul has just spent the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans outlining what he summarizes here as the mercies of God. He speaks in chapter one of how we've all rejected God, every single one of us, in favor of worshiping other things that are not God, which has twisted and warped our humanity. By nature, he says, all of us, whether morally good people or morally bad people, we all unleash hell into this world and into our lives by our own actions. But Paul says in chapter three, that God became a man and by his own sacrifice on the cross dealt with what is wrong with us and what is wrong with this world. That Jesus went to the cross to die as a sacrifice for the sins that we have committed so that we might not receive the final and ultimate sentence of death. And then in the chapters following chapter three, he unpacks more of what that means He tells us that Jesus frees us from the condemning voices of accusation that we face. That he has set us free by his Holy Spirit to actually get our lives back. That he's assured us that we will never lose the Father's love. And in one of the climactic statements of the book of Romans in chapter 8, verses 31 and 32 on the screen here for us, he says, if God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? You see, Romans chapter 1 through chapter 11 says that in Jesus, God has not withheld anything from you. So, Paul's logic goes in chapter 12, verse 1, how could you withhold anything from him? And some of you here this morning may struggle with Christianity. You may hear these words about sacrifice and whole life devotion, and that might make you scoff. For some of you, it might even make you flinch because of previous experiences that you've had where people have weaponized these words in ways they were never intended to be used. But let me ask you this question. Let's suppose that the God described in the Bible does exist. And let's suppose that if he exists, he really did become a man and in love gave his life for the sake of saving this world and all of us from the wrong that plagues plagues us. Supposing all of that is true, is there any other rational response than giving our lives holy over to this God in devotion and sacrifice and worship. You see, Paul appeals here to the rationality, the logic of the universe in which God became a man and sacrificed his life for us. For us to give our lives in return is the only reasonable response. And church, that's what we mean when we talk about being gospel-centered. If if you're a part of the the core team that founded this church, you've heard that a lot, uh, and you will hear that a lot in this church. When we talk about being centered on the gospel, we're talking about this. We're talking about the reality that, that when we understand that Jesus gave himself for us in love, it completely changes the way that we approach God. Right? So like, We don't devote ourselves to him 
with our lives, with like some sort of religious fervor, the way that a child flails around trying to get their absentee father's attention. That's not the way that we come before God. All of our Christian life, all of our obedience, all of our devotion is a response of love. It's a response of gratitude. We obey God's commands. We give our lives in worship to him because he has given himself for us. As 1 John chapter 4 says, that we love him because he first loved us. That's the simple logic of Christianity. And may this church be a place where that logic is clear, crystal clear always in what we say and in the way that we live and respond to Jesus who gave us everything. So worship involves our whole lives. And this life of worship is a life of response that is reasonable because of the mercies of God that have been shown towards us in the gospel. Now in verse two, Paul fleshes out for us how then we pursue a gospel-centered life of responsive worship to the living Jesus. He tells us that we do that by living lives of rhythms. Would you look with, with me at verse two again here? He says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Paul here gives a two-part command to tell us how we give ourselves sacrificially in response. So the first part of his command here is that we're not to be conformed to this age. Now, now that word conformed has the idea of being fit to a mold. So if you've ever been to Hershey's Chocolate World, that, that wonderful utopia of sugar um, and milk chocolate, then, then you know that video that they show um, that where it shows the, the liquid chocolate being pressed into those rectangular molds where it's, where it's to harden there. Picture that when this word it comes up. And the mold that we are commanded not to be made into here is the mold of this age. Now that phrase, this age, is a loaded phrase in the Bible. It refers to our present age of sin and death, to the age that is not redeemed fully by Jesus Christ, to, to the environment where things are saturated with evil and sin, an environment marked and plagued by death. And that's what Paul calls in Galatians chapter one, the present evil age. And this age forms us into a mold that is the opposite of what the New Testament describes as the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, things like that. Instead, this age forms us in the mold of anxiety, fear, aggression, pride, hatred, and other dehumanizing characteristics such as those. But rather than being conformed into that mold, the Apostle Paul commands us rather to be transformed. He's talking about each of us becoming more truly human, being set free from the things that plague us, becoming people of glory, becoming people like Jesus, 
who are fit not for this present evil age, but fit for the world to come, the new creation. People that can be rightly described as heavenly, glory people. Now, that's all fine and good. But you might say, as I'm saying at this point, that's really abstract. Like, how do we actually do that? How do we go from being conformed to the mold of this age to being transformed? And if you don't realize this soon in your life, you will realize this soon in your life. Change is hard, right? To change is incredibly difficult. Many of us know this because we're still wrestling with the same sins, the same fears, the same insecurities that we've had since we were adolescents or younger. The things about ourselves that we want to change. The things about ourselves that we don't like. Not in some sort of self-hatred way that's, that's toxic and wrong, but, some, but, but in the way that genuinely we have parts of ourselves that we know only cause us and others harm in the world. And many of us know that it's hard to change because as much as we say we're gonna do things differently from all the ways that we've said our families have done things wrong, our families of origin have done things wrong, yet how often do we respond to our friends or our spouse or our kids in the same way that our parents reacted sinfully to us and we just perpetuate that cycle? Sin and all of its effects run deep in us. Change is hard. And that's just talking about what's within us, right? And and let me tell you something else you already know this morning, that this age is alarmingly effective at conforming us into its mold. For example, one lie that that our age, today, our age, like not meaning the present evil age, but like today in 2023, tries to conform us all into is the simple three-word lie, you are enough. I can't think of anything that's more uh, contrary to the gospel than that. And, and, and this week I thought about, I just took like a, a cross section of one of my days and I'm like, how many times do I hear that message in one day? So an average day in the life of Ben Bechtel, here we go. So uh, a particular workout podcast that, that I listen to about running. That's a theme on there often. Uh, watching a Disney movie with my two daughters then going to a yoga class with my wife, Whitley, then reading a book with my girls before bed, all with that same message. And that's not even factoring in like the social media ads that barrage all of us all of the time, not just with annoying things, but with that message contained in it. Our world is effective at conforming us into its mold. And all this should lead us to say, true change is nearly impossible. To to really change, we need more than just spiritual platitudes. Like, how can we actually go from being conformed to the mold of this age to being transformed into the image of Jesus in our normal, everyday lives? Well, we here as a church believe that change happens best 
through habitual practices or rhythms in our lives that expose us to the glory of Jesus. Smaller rhythms that help us do this big rhythm of not being conformed, but being transformed. Change happens by living a life of rhythms. And let me submit to you this morning that if we don't establish rhythms of grace in our lives, we can easily become conformed to the mold of this age. Now, when when I speak about rhythms, uh, we're speaking of regular practices that the Christian church has done for centuries. Things like reading our Bibles, praying, gathering for public worship like we are today, uh, fasting, generosity, service, those kinds of things. These are disciplines or, or regular habits that we put in place in our lives in order to retune our hearts to the love of God. Now, this might seem abstract to you, maybe a bit arbitrary, but think about the way that we as human beings work. We naturally order our lives with rhythms centered around the things that we desire and want most. So take, for instance, the person gripped by their desire to become a certain someone in their career. So I know a lot of you in here are in college. Like this, this, this relates to you guys, right? So let's take a lawyer, for example, somebody who's gripped with the desire to be a lawyer. They'll shape the rhythms of their entire life around what it means to succeed in law. They'll reorganize their sleep schedule. They'll sacrifice time with friends and family in order to study for the bar exam. They'll spend literally every waking hour either uh, working to get money or studying to pass that exam. It takes a thousand or more small churches, choices, <laughs> choices, to be transformed into somebody that's fit for the courtroom. And the same principle applies to our own Christian lives. Listen to what Christian philosopher James K. Smith says on this point. He says, acquiring virtue takes practice. Such moral, kingdom-reflecting dispositions, the fruit of the Spirit, are inscribed into your character through rhythms and routines and rituals enacted over and over again that implant in you a disposition to an end that becomes a character trait, a sort of learned, second-nature default orientation that you tend toward without thinking about it. This has important implications for how we approach Christian formation. And I think Mr. Smith is right on that front. He's saying that not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewal of our mind is the culmination of lived rhythms, of thousands of little tiny acts of resistance that transform you into a person of beauty, a person that looks like Jesus, a person fit for the age to come. Now, some of you at this point uh, may be resistant to this idea. You might say, to, to talk about our Christian life, but through the lens of rhythms or disciplines, isn't that legalistic? Right? Like, like to say that in order to encounter the presence of Jesus in my life, I've got to do all this stuff. You might say, I thought this was about grace. And I think that's a really valid objection. And I think that objection helps 
to get underneath why these rhythms of grace are actually effective to change us. Now, one thing I didn't mention when we were walking through verse 2 a minute ago is that that word transformed, the word translated transformed in our English Bibles, is a word that's not used many other places in the New Testament. And where it is used, it's very important. So it's used in two different gospel accounts to describe what we commonly call the transfiguration of Jesus. This crazy story where Jesus took three of his disciples up on a mountain and he revealed himself to them in his future coming glory. It says that Jesus was transformed, same word, before their eyes. And then the only other place it's used in the Bible is in a verse that's been read several times in this service already, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And in that verse particularly, we get a window into what Paul is talking about when he means, when he says that we are to be transformed and how that relates to the rhythms of grace. Let's read this verse one more time. It says, we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. So what's all this stuff about rhythms about? How at rock bottom ultimately are we changed? Well, we are changed. The only way that you and I can change is by beholding the glory of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, guys, the way we change is by encountering the living Jesus, by seeing his beauty. You see, these disciplines and rhythms, these practices in our life are not stale Christian rituals by which we just check a box to feel good about our, our religious life for a couple of days or weeks. These rhythms actually open up for us space to meet Jesus in the ordinary moments of our days and our lives. Christian philosopher Dallas Willard speaks about Christian rhythms like this. He says the rhythms of grace are ways of putting up our sails, so to speak, to catch the wind of God's spirit driving us along towards Christ-likeness. I love that image. It's so good. A sailor, just to extrapolate on that a little bit more, right? So a sailor who's seen the beauty of the sea isn't content just to sit on the shore with like being rocked by the waves with their sails down. Somebody who's seen the beauty of the sea wants to get out there and explore, right? Their sails are up because they want to encounter the beauty of the open ocean. And so, friends, when we order our lives with practices of worship, like daily Bible reading or prayer or gathering together for worship or generosity, what we're doing is stretching out our sails to receive the grace of the living Jesus. We do all of this because we love him, not because we're trying to anxiously earn his favor or his gaze, but because we know we have it. And notice in that text in 2 Corinthians that change is not ultimately dependent upon us, right? He, that, that whole chapter culminating in verse 18 is all about how God gives us his spirit. All that we have to do is in faith 
open up our sails, is, is get these rhythms into our life and God will blow his spirit into our lives. Would you, in summary, would you charge me with being legalistic by insisting that my wife Whitley and I have a regular date night and have coffee together some mornings? And by like putting that on our calendar and really insisting that that's on our calendar? No, no, you'd be like, that's a good thing to do as a married couple. In fact, that probably keeps the flame of your love alive. That's a rhythm shaped by love. Church, it's the same thing with the rhythms that we build into our lives. These rhythms of grace, these practices are ways that we can encounter Jesus and be changed. All because we love Jesus and we want to look more like him. And so my question this morning for you is, has Jesus so gripped your heart that you're willing to make the thousands of small choices that it requires to pursue him in love. Like, if you really want his presence in your life, if you really want to be a person of glory and substance like him, if you really want your life to reflect more of his loving, generous, gentle, non-anxious presence, then it's time to start ordering your life around him. And if you're here and you're like, man, I don't know, that all sounds like a bit much, that sounds a bit weird, then I would just say that I think Christianity is a little bit weird. (laughs) Not weird in a socially awkward, we only make jokes about the Bible kind of weird, but weird in the sense that like, we believe that God became a man and gave himself for us in love. Guys, I know, I see it. I don't know, is it a bee? Is it a wasp? Awesome. We are a church plant. (laughs) but like uh, Christianity is inherently meant to be something that upends our lives in a weird strange way where we give ourselves wholly to the one who gave himself to us so practically as we close what does it mean for us as a church to live out this value two things really quickly something corporate and something individual First, this value influences our corporate worship. This value is why when we gather together every Sunday, we have virtually the same rhythm in our worship service. We want our Sunday worship to help transform us deeply at the core of who we are, to help each of us not be conformed to the mold of this age, but be transformed to look like Jesus. And so we begin each worship service with a call to worship, where we acknowledge that God is the one who calls us here. We then confess our sins as a way to wake ourselves up to the fact that we are drifting mindlessly towards conformity to the mold of this age. And then we declare the gospel, we hear a sermon, and we practice the Lord's Supper every week to declare to us the good news of Jesus, to to get him in front of our faces so that we can change And finally, we're sent out with a blessing and a charge as people who are gospeled up with this good news, sent to be God's agents of reconciliation in the world. That's why we have that rhythm to our service. We don't, by the way, we don't have that order uh, to our service because we want to be highbrow in any way. We could care less about that, and I hope you know that to this point. We worship like this because we collectively, week after week after week, 
small step by small step, want to be people who encounter the real Jesus and who look more like the real Jesus. Secondly, this value plays out in our individual lives in this church in the way that we talk about the Christian life. Here at MCC, we're gonna talk about the Christian life a lot in terms of these rhythms. Oftentimes when I hear teaching on this passage in Romans or uh, what it means to live the Christian life, it is so painfully vague. Like, what does it actually look like for me to follow Jesus in my everyday life? Would somebody please tell me what that looks like? And I don't know if you have that same frustration sometimes. Here at MCC, we want to be able to point one another to these concrete Christian rhythms that open our lives up to Jesus and form us into his image. So basically, we want to be able to encourage one another by saying, hey, fellow Christian, are you doing these things? Are you pursuing Jesus in this way? Good. Then you're pursuing the Christian life. You're pursuing Jesus. We want to demystify to some extent what it looks like to be a Christian. Uh, we, we don't want you to feel like you have to be a monk or be some spiritual experience chaser to be a real Christian. We want to demystify that for you. And so on the screen here is a list of what we're, gonna, we're calling our rhythms of grace here as a church. We're actually going to do a sermon series in the spring after Easter where for 11, 12 weeks we walk through each of these different uh, practices and talk about how it should inform our daily lives as Christians and what, how that helps us to follow Jesus. Now, with all that said, I know that talk about rhythms and disciplines of the Christian life can hit us normally one or two ways. So if you're a certain personality type, you hear all these things, you see that list, and you instantly go, oh man, I suck. Like, I can't, I can't do any of that. Like, I, my life looks nothing like that. And then I think there's another personality type that sees a list like that and says, man, there we go again. There's religion trying to constrain me, trying to tell me what I can and can't do, trying to hinder my freedom. And so as we close, I want to leave us with a favorite quote of mine from, from C.S. Lewis that I think helps wake us up to, to who we are as humans and the glory that we're headed for in Christ and what that glory, how that glory that we're headed for in Christ like informs how we go about these rhythms every single day, gives us a vision for that. So this is C.S. Lewis at his best. This is from his sermon, The Weight of Glory. He says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to now may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. You go to the next slide there. Thanks. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. If he is your Christian neighbor, he is, he is holy. For in him also Christ, the glorifier and the glorified, glory himself is truly hidden. Midtown Community Church, our daily lives, 
the moments of our daily lives are weighty. Because in the everyday moments of our lives, we have the opportunity to become people of beauty and people of glory. The rhythms of grace help every day to push us one step closer to Jesus in love until you and I one day when Jesus returns are unveiled before each other and we are tempted if it weren't for the splendor and beauty of Jesus himself to fall down and worship. That's who you are. That's where you're headed in the gospel. And because Jesus is alive right now and has given us his spirit, you can change. And so let's press on together, church. Let's live lives of response to the mercies of God and lives of rhythms that open us up to the grace of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that in Jesus you are making us like yourself. Thank you that we're not people who are stuck, that this isn't all that there is. And I thank you, Lord, for the the hope and promise of the gospel that is ours today. And so, Lord, I pray that because of that good news, that we would be people who shape our lives around practices that open ourselves up to your presence. And through that, that we would be people with the reality of Jesus himself in our lives. Change us, Lord, even now as we come before you in the Lord's Supper. Amen.